You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. And this honestly is one of those passages that if we uh, picked and choose what we were doing, this may not be on the top of my uh, my list of passages to to preach. Um, I heard one uh, speaker referencing this passage, particularly Genesis 6, 1 through 8, is that it's one of the most difficult uh, passages in the book of Genesis to interpret and to understand exactly what's going on, which you'll see here in just a moment. Uh, but I'm thankful as we walk through God's Word uh, that we come to uh, not only the, the passages that make us feel good, but also those that, uh, that cause us to stop and really consider uh, the truth of God's Word and, and confront us uh, and helping us to, to understand who God is um, how he responds to sin and, and how we should uh, respond to sin. But uh, <clears throat> last week we looked at Genesis 4, which in some ways uh, helped us to see our own response to temptation and sin, particularly uh, as we looked at Cain and Abel um, and Cain's response to God as he, as, he came to Ab- as he came to Cain and said that sin is crouching out the door for you. But if you turn, uh, then it will go well for you. Uh, but Cain doesn't listen, and we saw our own challenge uh, with temptation and sin. Well, today, Genesis 5 and 6, particularly in Genesis 6, we're going to see how God responds to sin. But <clears throat> um, because we're talking about sin and God's response and, and even kind of having in the back of our mind our response, you know, sometimes our perception of something is skewed from the reality uh, of what it actually is. Um, there's a meme that's gone around for a while that's one of my favorites um, that, that talks about perception and reality. Um, I, I was uh, at the gym yesterday running, and um, this was in my mind. Um, I definitely think I'm like, uh, you know, a premier athlete uh, when I'm on the treadmill and I'm running. Um, and the reality is I probably look like a hot mess, right? Like, uh, sometimes how we perceive things and the reality of things are, are different, um, but far more serious than how we look when we run. Uh, when, we, when it comes to viewing sin, sometimes our perception of the seriousness of sin, of the reality of sin, is skewed from the reality of it. And something that we need to open our eyes up to the reality of sin is to see it from God's perspective, to understand how God views sin, because it's so easy for us to either dismiss the seriousness of sin or at least put it out of our minds, out of sight, out of mind. We don't have to deal with it. But the reality is it's far more serious than we could imagine. It, it takes us to the very heart of understanding who God is as holy and righteous and just. And though we can think that sin sometimes isn't a big deal, uh, to God it's always a big deal. And in reality, it's the most important thing that we could understand is how to view sin and how to respond to sin. And looking in Genesis 5 and 6 today, we're going to see God's response to sin. And so we're, we're starting in Genesis 5.1, uh, but just to kind of remind you of where we're at in Genesis, Genesis kind of breaks down uh, on the basis of this uh, phrase um, that, that says the generations of. You'll notice it. I'm sorry that it's small, but I wanted to fit it on one screen. Um, you'll notice it starting at the beginning of each of these units uh, in the book of Genesis. It's kind of the way in which Moses has broken up the book. It's clear that Genesis 3.15, that sense of an offspring that's to come, is a guiding uh, kind of 
framework for the book of Genesis as a whole because all of these take us uh, and, and kind of show us especially uh, the way in which the, the promised offspring of Adam and ultimately Noah and then uh, down to Abraham is going to come and bring blessing uh, to all peoples and how God is going to make Israel into a great nation. And, and so there's this great concern with, with how the generations develop throughout the book of Genesis. And that's exactly what we're going to find in Genesis 5 is that it begins a new section um, here in the book that takes us through um, all the way from Adam to Noah. Look, look with me to Genesis 5. Um, we're going to read some portions of it and, and point out some, some important parts. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the document or the generations containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. If, if you remember Genesis 1, this is reiterating what Genesis 1, 26 through 27 said, that, that God is the creator of all things, and he created as the pinnacle of his creation humanity, male and female, Adam and Eve. He created them in his image, in the likeness of God. And it says that when he created them, he blessed them and called them mankind. And it, be, it goes on in verse 3, Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. <clears throat> now, we'll get to the ages here in just a minute. Um, I'm in my 30s thinking about being a father to children. I can't imagine being 130 and being father, a father to children. But um, <clears throat> it goes on to say, Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, and then he died. And then it picks up with Seth, and it goes from Seth all the way down to Noah in verse 32. And it says, <clears throat> starting in verse 30, Lamech, Lamech, who's not in reference to the one we saw in Genesis 4, but a different one, lived 595 years and fathered Noah. <clears throat> and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years, and then he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, this is the, uh, the generations of, of Adam taking us from Adam to Noah. What I want us to see in terms of God's response to, to sinners, uh, God's, God's response to sin is right here in chapter 5 that God is patient with sinners. God is patient with us. Um, but before, before we dive into that, I, I think two issues up front that have to be uh, addressed and acknowledged as we look at Genesis 5 is the time span covered by the genealogy and then the lifespan of those who are listed in the genealogy. So uh, the genealogy is, is not an unbroken chain. Um, and, and we know this because it doesn't begin with the first child that Adam and Eve um, brought into this world uh, with Cain or even with Abel. In fact, it begins later with Seth. Um, and so uh, what we see happening is there's a selectivity in who is listed because it's pointing out how we get from Adam uh, to Noah. It's, it's showing us the way in which that takes place. Um, and so it's not an unbroken chain per se, though I think there's much overlap that takes place here. Um, but it's not saying that even that Seth is the first child of Abraham or necessarily say that, that Enosh is the first child of, uh, of Seth and, and et cetera. Uh, but it's pointing out selectively the line through which God has chosen to bring about uh, his promise, ultimately leading us 
to Noah, which will then lead us uh, through Shem uh, to, to Abraham. And so the time span isn't this unbroken chain, but it's demonstrating God's promise of Genesis 3.15, how it'll come to, pa- how it'll come to pass. Now, the, the lifespan, which I joked about being 130 uh, when Adam was giving birth to Seth, um, <clears throat> is a unique thing. And there are a lot of people who look at that and go, just no way, no way that can be real. Like, that's way too long. Like, nobody lives till 900 years old, right? Um, like Methuselah. Like, we joke about Methuselah. When somebody's in their 90s, we say, you're as old as Methuselah, right? But uh, Methuselah made it to 969, right? Like, he, he was an old guy. And so, as we look at this, just the kind of uh, bent in my own heart is, I want to understand God's word according uh, to its word. And it's clear throughout Genesis that we're talking about history. Um, it's clear, even in Genesis 5, that as it goes back to creation, uh, this isn't a, a, a metaphorical story about uh, the longevity of life. This is, this is talking um, and presenting this as literal, that these are literal years. And, and particularly, I think it's tied to the blessing that God gave uh, uh, to, uh, to Adam and Eve and to humanity. And, and part of the reason in which we see them put out uh, of the of the garden is so that they might not live in their sin forever. Um, and so there's this sense in which there is a real blessing that God has given humanity in this pre-flood um, uh, period of time in which their lives and their lifespans were significantly longer than they are today. Um, and and this also, I think, helps us to make sense of how humanity began to develop. Uh, for, for example, I didn't have time to look at this last week. When Cain goes away uh, from, uh, from his family and is this wanderer, he knows his wife and has children. So who, where did Cain find his wife? Um, and this is, I'll be honest, as a, uh, just a student of the Bible, I'm, I'm disappointed in commentators because most of them dodge this bullet. Uh, because they don't want to, uh, to wrestle with this. Uh, you either have to think that God created other people um, in addition to Adam and Eve, and that's how Cain found his wife, or that uh, Cain's wife was among perhaps one of his sisters uh, or one of uh, his sister's children, um, and, and that's how it developed. And it's clear in God's word in the law that God forbids intermarriage later on, uh, that we see that clearly in the law, and I'm resisting all the jokes that as an Arkansas person or West Virginia person, all the jokes that come up about, about all of this. But it's clear before God does that, even as we see with Abraham and Sarah, that the initial way in which humanity developed on the earth, according to what we see in Genesis, is it all came through Adam and Eve and the children that they bore. And if, if Adam lives till, um, if Adam lives till 930 years, uh, there are a lot of children that are probably born during that time period. And in fact, it says it makes this point. This is the reason I think that these are little years and helps us to understand how humanity began to flourish. After Adam uh, fathered Seth, it says he lived 800 years and he fathered other sons and daughters. The implication is there were more children and that this is how humanity developed. And so while that today, uh, there's something C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Sometimes we can look back and we can be like, oh, those people are so you know, medieval, they didn't know what they were talking about. I can't believe that they're saying that. We can sometimes look at it from our perspective today and go, no way, that's what's going on here. Uh, that just doesn't make sense. And rightfully so, because God's word and the law, which was given uh, after this period of time, after it got to a certain point, it was clear 
uh, that that was not to take place. Um, and yet in the beginning, it was, I think, how God intended humanity to spread out and to, uh, to develop. And another a point here as it relates to their lifespan, I think God specifically uh, says that uh, we'll look at in, uh, in chapter 6 that he's going to limit their days to 120 years. And so from Genesis 6 and after the flood, we begin to see the lifespan of people decrease. Um, and some people take uh, the limit to 100, the statement of 120 years to be a reference to the amount of time before the flood comes. Uh, but I think in light of the, the clear uh, digression of the age of people in the Bible, it's clear that God as judgment is limiting their life span to 120 years. And scientific studies today show that if everything were to go well for human beings today, we can live for about 120 to 125 years. Um, and it's reflected in, uh, in our DNA and, um, <clears throat> today. And so we see uh, through all of this that the lifespans that's presented here in Genesis 5 and in the, account, the early accounts of Genesis, I take as literal. And I think it's, it's helpful for us to understand it for those reasons um, and important for us to check uh, perhaps our skepticism as we look at it based on how we understand things today and understand how God uh, unfolds things in the beginning, but then how he limits things as judgment and how the flood and what follows really changes the makeup of our world and the makeup of human beings. Um, and so uh, we, we see how uh, these two issues up front, I think, are just begging to be answered, of course, as we read them. It's important for us to, to kind of try to make sense of how God's word presents itself and, uh, and how to understand it uh, faithfully and appropriately. And I think that's the best way uh, to take uh, this genealogy is to understand it not as a, unbro- as, not as a linked chain of successive um, Births, but as an unbroken chain with an emphasis on the promise of Genesis 3.15 coming to pass and the lifespan of those in Genesis 5 as literal. But I said the point here wasn't to unpack how long uh, the people lived, but it's to demonstrate that God is patient with sinners. Um, <clears throat> I know if uh, God is patient with me in my 30 plus years of sinning, how much he must have been patient uh, with uh, with Adam and his 900 years of sinning, right? Like, so we could say, sure, God is patient in that regard. Uh, but but I, what, I, what I want you to see is that following from, following from what God told Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, he said, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Uh, the, the reality of death and death's reign becomes apparent as we look at this genealogy. If you look at Genesis 5, and you just allow your eyes to fall over the page, you'll see 10 times, he died, he died, he died, he died. I won't go through 10, but you get the point, right? As sure, uh, the only sure things in life, uh, they say, uh, are taxes, right? That's coming up, um, and death. Uh, and, And here we see the reality of death's reign. Uh, in, uh, in this genealogy. And death's reign comes, as we mentioned, as Genesis 2, 15 through 17 says, because of sin. And yet in the midst of this, even though we're about to see God's judgment through the flood, in the midst of the generation after generation after generation of death's reign, 
And, and as we saw in Genesis 4, of humanity apart from God, capable of great things, and yet dismissing and denying God throughout their life, presuming against God like Lamech did, boasting of killing a man and uh, dishonoring God's uh, design for marriage and uh, presuming against God's promises, just like God promised to avenge Cain. He says, uh, anybody who does this to me, I'll avenge them 77 times. The earth is filled with sin. Sin is spreading. And the results of sin are spreading. And yet God is patient here. And in the midst of his patience, we see that though sin, um, sin is spreading and death is reigning, we see that there is a way to find life. And we find it down in Genesis 5, 21 through 25. It says that Enoch, who was fathered by Jared, it says in 18 through verse 20, was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he followed, followed, fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Notice at this point in the genealogy, expectation would be defined and he died. But it says that Enoch walked with God and then he was not because God took him. The only way to take this is similar to how we understand what happened to Elijah, that God translated Enoch from this life to heaven. That, that Enoch experienced life in the fullest of ways because he walks with God. God takes him to be with him. And we, we begin to see that uh, this life that's found in walking with God, uh, that's communicated by Enoch's life, that this, this idea of walking with God becomes um, really a significant description of the, of the believer's faith in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, that they walked with God, that we walk in Christ. So uh, as you received Christ, Paul is saying in Colossians, so walk in him. This this description of life with God. And Hebrews 11, 5 through 6, um, verses 4, talk about uh, Cain's life. You can tell how uh, the author of Hebrews is reading Genesis. Uh, because it goes through, uh, starting with, uh, with, um, with Abel's sacrifice and how he offered it by faith. And it comes to Enoch in verse 5 and 6. And it says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, Hebrews helps us to understand that walking with God means living by faith in God and his promises. That's what it means to walk with God. It means to live by faith in who God is and in his promises. That he, if we draw near to him, we must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. It means that we see in Enoch's life that the greatest reward of walking with God isn't the material blessings of life on this earth. We see that the reward of walking with God is God himself. To be with him, to enjoy him, that's the greatest gift. That's what we were created for. That's what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. And it was like Enoch took, it was like God took Enoch back to, to what Adam and Eve had experienced in Genesis 1 and 2 of being with God. You see that this, uh, the life of Enoch is this reminder that while death reigns, God provides life for those who turn to him and who walk with him. It, it reminds me, though, as we look at uh, the spread of sin and the reign of death of Second Peter. 
We're going to come back a few times to this reference. 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 9. Uh, <clears throat> a little bit of a longer text, but uh, speaks uh, to, uh, to, to this very idea. It says, Dear friends, <clears throat> this is now the second letter I've written you. In both letters, I want to stir you up to sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and commended uh, and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles, speaking of the apostolic word and the words of Jesus. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he has promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. This is the mocking of some people when, when, when God's people talk about how God is going to return, when Jesus is going to come back. There are always going to be people who mock and scoff and say, where is God? He hadn't come back yet. What did he do? Fall asleep? It's been like this since the beginning. They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. And through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. I think Peter had read Genesis uh, 1 through uh, 6, or 1 through 9, really. It says that it, it perished through the flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, for judgment to come, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promises as some understand the delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Sin spreads, death reigns, but God is patient, desiring that all would find life in him and walk with him. And so Genesis 5 takes us from Adam to Noah, but it's demonstrating in this journey of this genealogy how God is patient with us, desiring that we would find life and walk in Him just as Enoch does. But it brings us to the second reality, that God grieves over our sin. Look in Genesis 6, 1-6. through When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. We hear about them in Numbers 13. When the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were powerful men of old, the famous men. And when the Lord saw the human wickedness that was widespread on the earth, that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. You see, Genesis 6 takes us to perhaps what is one of the most bizarre passages uh, in the Bible, Um, but one that's there uh, for us to understand, and it speaks to the reality of sin and the depth at which sin had taken hold of humanity during this time. It says that the sons of God... uh, came and saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the sons of God get all the attention here, um, and we'll talk about them in just a minute. But uh, the point, I think, of what unfolds here is, is really to show us the depravity of sin and God grieving over 
the depth of sin in humanity. And that's where verse 5 is key, speaking to, to how human wickedness, the sinfulness of man, was so widespread on the earth that every inclination of the mind was nothing but evil all the time. But <clears throat> to get to verse 6 or verse 5, we have to understand what verses 1 through 4 are saying. So who were the sons of God that came to the daughters of men? There are kind of two primary ways to understand this. Some understand it as the, the sons of Seth, from the line of Seth. You kind of have this contrast in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth, so to speak. Uh, and so some would take it perhaps that these are the sons of Seth who came to the daughters perhaps of Cain, uh, and they had uh, children, and, uh, and, and so it goes. To me, that, that, that would be nice. I would like the convenience of that interpretation. Um, but it doesn't make sense of the, the significance of why God responds the way that he does. The other primary understanding is that these are fallen angels, that this is demonic activity, that the sons of God, which throughout the Bible, the sons of God, when we get to the New Testament, we have a clear reference to the sons of God uh, being God's children is a reference to believers. But throughout the Old Testament, the sons of God is repeatedly a reference to angels. Um, it speaks of this in Job, how the sons of God were there before the, uh, at the, at the creation of the earth and rejoicing in the creation of things. Um, and, and then in other places, we see references to the sons of God being references to angels. And obviously, we know from Jesus's teaching that angels aren't given in marriage. And so this isn't like an angelic being coming down and marrying uh, a human wife, but is most likely uh, a picture of some type of demonic possession of, of men on the earth at this time. And, and the reference to what they're talking about, as you notice it, some commentators think that uh, we're talking about the depth and depravity of sin that it comes down to all the way down into, into this kind of sexual deviation and that perhaps this is the foundation of the idea of a harem, that they took wives, any that they chose uh, for themselves. Um, and, and their children uh, are these, these men who are called Nephilim, uh, who, were, uh, who it says were powerful men of old and, and famous in that day. Uh, warriors is the idea uh, of the picture. And so some kind of combine this idea that perhaps demonic possession took over very powerful warrior-like men who then take wives for themselves, any that they choose, uh, driven by lust, um, and give birth to other children. And it's this picture of the crossing of boundaries that God never intended to cross, the, um, the, the deviation from God's design of marriage, the lustful drive of men, the violence of these men of old who filled the earth at this time. If you, if you, if you paint the picture, it's a total devolving of sin. It's the downward spiral of sin taking full effect. And the reason I think that this is the most likely interpretation is because of the New Testament. If you look at 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, uh, we find this kind of common reference to these fallen angels and the flood and the days of Noah um, kind of repeatedly, both in 1 Peter and 2 Peter and then even in Jude. Um, in 1 Peter, as I mentioned in, in chapter 3, 19 through 20, we see the first reference uh, to this, it says, <clears throat> it says in verse 19, <clears throat> 
starting in verse 18 for context, speaks of Christ suffering for sins once for all, that the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, in the, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. This is reference to fallen angels who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And it goes on and it talks about how God saved Noah and it makes a connection to to baptism there. Uh, But it has this reference to these spirits, which throughout the Bible isn't a reference to human spirits, but is a reference to angelic spirits uh, that were in prison and were in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Second Peter makes this more clear in chapter two, verse four. For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but he cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world to the ungodly, and he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is to come to the ungodly. It says it goes on to talk about how he rescued a lot, and it makes particular connection to the uh, to the to the sexual sinfulness uh, uh, during this time. That we have this connection to the angels during the days of Noah, who were cast into into hell, into chains because of their sin, and and that then becomes all the more clear in Jude. Uh, if you look in Jude, verse six, only one chapter, it says in in, in verse six. The angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling. He has kept an eternal change in deep darkness for the judgment of that great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is a real lighthearted sermon. I apologize. But we see the New Testament helps us to understand what Genesis 6 is talking about. And we know in the Gospels that the demons clearly have this thirst to embody, whether it be animals, the pigs who are cast out, the uh, Mark 5, the demoniac man who, uh, who was demon-possessed and who had unbelievable power and strength and couldn't be contained in hell. We, we see that this is clearly something that was taking place during this time, and it speaks to the depth at which sin had taken hold in the hearts and lives of people. And during this context, the idea is what, would, what was being taken place is that anyone who is married, they were given in marriage by their parents during this time. So you have the whole um, participation of families in this deviation and sinfulness and saying, yeah, I'll give my daughter to be married clearly to someone uh, who, who is under the influence of, of this fallen demonic activity. It's this picture of depravity. It's what Romans 3, 9 through 18 says when it talks about the sinfulness of man. When it says that all of us, all of us have sinned and don't please God. It, it says it in a, in a striking way in Romans 3, starting in verse 9. It says, Jew and Gentile. There is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands God, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throats an open grave, they deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is in their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their past. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Listen to 
the Bible teaches us that, <clears throat> that we, are, uh, we are totally depraved, that we are sinful in, in every capacity. Here's what that means, though. It doesn't mean that we all sin in every way. It's, it doesn't mean that we never choose to do something good, that, that there are no nice people who are also, uh, who reject God and who, who don't believe in him. It means, that, it means that we're not all as sinful as we could be, but we all are sinful. We, we all have sinned and rejected God in our hearts. And apart from God waking us up and making us alive, we would not choose him. And Genesis 6 shows us what happens when that is taken to the fullest degree. It's an ugly picture. Sin grieves the heart of God just as it damages our relationship with him. Psalm 78, 36 through 41, referencing God's people in the past, it says that they flattered him with their mouths, but they lied to him with their um, they lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not steadfast towards him. They weren't faithful to the covenant. But he was compassionate and he atoned for their iniquity and didn't destroy them. He restrained his anger often and didn't stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were flesh and the wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him and grieved him in the desert. It's showing us the depravity of our sin. But remember, this passage is pointing us to God's response to our sin. How does he respond? He's grieved over sin. Ephesians 4.30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our sin grieves the heart of God. If we could get a glimpse of the depth of our sin in Genesis 6, which is mind-boggling to us, we don't quite understand what's taking place there. The point of it is that whether it's the sons of Seth or it's these fallen angels, uh, the point is humanity is beyond self-help. You can't find a book at Barnes & Noble or on Amazon that's going to fix the problem in Genesis 6. You can't find a book that's going to make your life better in seven days. What, what Genesis 6 is saying is that sin, the depth of sin brings about the judgment of God. But the God who judges us, which we're going to see in a minute, is grieved over our sin. And it goes on to say not only does he grieve over their sin, but Genesis 6.5 says that, that he <clears throat> regretted that he had made man on the earth. What does that mean, that God regrets that he made man on the earth? <clears throat> I think the language of regretting, we clearly know that God is not man. He took on flesh in the person of Jesus, the second member of the Godhead did. But God is not <clears throat> a human being. He doesn't have a, a heart uh, in the literal sense. Uh, but we see his emotions throughout the scriptures and the language, these anthropomorphism languages that are used of God are an accommodation, if you will, to us to help us understand God. Uh, John Calvin um, said that it's, it's like a, a father lisping to a child uh, to, to talk to them uh, so that they can understand. It's God lisping to us. It's his uh, speaking of regret is meant to communicate his profound displeasure of sin. It doesn't mean that he's changed, <clears throat> that uh, something that he is Uh, that he has changed, but that something he created has changed. And then he expresses his disappointment in words that we can grasp. There's a a passage in 1 Samuel 15. Um, We don't have time to read it, but if you go just note 1 Samuel 15, verses 11 and verse 29. Um, In 1 Samuel 15, 11, after Saul sins and God removes him from being king, it says that he regretted making Saul king. 
And then it says in verse 29 that God doesn't um, repent or regret in the same way that man should because he is not man. He is God. And so it's like this. Well, verse 11 and verse 29, he repented or he regretted, but he isn't like man who regrets. And and so uh, I I was helped by this statement by John Piper. He said the point of this verse Verse 11 is even though there is a sense in which God does repent or regret, it's the same word, there is another sense in which he does not repent or regret. That's what verse 29 of 1 Samuel 15 says. The difference would naturally be that God's repentance happens or regret happens in spite of the fact that he has perfect foreknowledge. It's not that he didn't know what was going to take place. Because uh, that would be like a human repenting or regretting. We regret, we repent because we lack foreknowledge of what's to come, right? Like we, we you know, you, you do something and, uh, and, and you can regret it. I, I actually thought of it this way. Um, I like Frida Batitos. I don't know if any of you are reading there. Um, I know the outcome of what's going to happen when I eat uh, one of those sandwiches from Frida Batitos. Um, and... And yet I do, because I couldn't have imagined it any other way, right? Um, and so on the other end of it, uh, I know what's going to happen, but I regret having done it uh, because of the feeling on the other side um, in, a, in, in a much more serious way. What, what we have here is God knows what's going to happen. And yet speaking in language that accommodates to us, he says he, he, he regrets what has taken place. And so all that we can say is, while most human repentance or regret happens because we lack foreknowledge, God's does not. He has perfect foreknowledge. God's way of repenting or regretting is unique to him. God is not man that he should repent. So as we understand what's taking place here, we have the internal heart of God, so to speak, on display. That what what God does in Genesis 5 and 6 is also to understand that God doesn't act inconsistent with who he is. God doesn't change in the essence of his nature and his promises. So when when he uh, brings judgment on creation because of the sinfulness of humanity, it's not inconsistent with who he is because he is righteous and holy. He created man out of an overflow of who he is. He judges humanity in an overflow of who he is. Uh, and so we, we have here this picture of God's grieving over sin in Genesis 6 that leads ultimately to judgment. It says in verse 7, the Lord said, I will wipe or blot out mankind whom I've created off the face of the earth. And together with the animals and the creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. God brings judgment. He judges sin. Reminds me as well in Romans chapter 2 as Paul unpacks um, the character of God and his response to sin in Romans 2, 4 through 5. He says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but instead because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Presuming against God's kindness and his patience. God is patient and kind, not wishing that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But the day of judgment is coming. And it will come, Jesus says, like a thief in the night. 
2 Peter 3.10 says, That day will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. I remember being in college and being shaken by the reality of hell. I became a believer as a teenager when I was 14. And I remember for the first time in my life going, I don't know that I believe that. I don't know that I like that. I don't know that I can get on board with the God who judges us because of our sin and this idea of the reality of hell. And all I knew to do at that point, I'm grateful for the early discipleship in my life. All I knew to do is to go to the Bible and look at every passage about judgment and hell. And so somewhere um, in my dorm room, I just wrote out every passage. And the realization that I came to is God's ways aren't my ways. God's thoughts aren't my thoughts. But, but this reality is what, what was impressed upon me when I did that. We must be more sinful than we realize. And God must be more holy than we can fully comprehend. Because God's judgment is, be, is, is a matter of justice. God cannot sweep sin under the rug. God cannot overlook sin or he wouldn't be God. None of us want a God who overlooks sin. Every time we pray when injustice happens, when we see sin in the world, we're praying for a God who's consistent with his nature and that he will act when sin takes place, when wickedness and evil and injustice takes place. We want God to be true to who he is. What disturbs us is when God is true to who he is in response to our sin. This reality of God's judgment should sober us, should make us to consider our own salvation, consider how we have responded to our sin. If we have seen our sin for what it is, the sinfulness of our sin and turn from our sin and turn to God. But it also should provoke in us a burden. We too live in a world where sin spreads and death reigns. And we have the answer. See, I don't think any of us can think about hell and not only not be sobered, but also not be burdened for those who don't know Christ. I heard this quote a long time ago from Charles Spurgeon. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's the burden that we bear as believers as we look at the reality of sin in this world. There's no presumption. There's, there's no pride in thinking that we've got it figured out. We've got all the answers. There, there's no boasting. There's no looking down our nose on someone who, who doesn't yet know Christ and thinking, oh, you just don't know. There should be only in our hearts humility that we would stand in the same place if it weren't for the grace of God. And an imploring that says, please come to him. He is patient. His kindness is for you to come to repentance. That's the message that we bear. And Roman, uh, Genesis 6 eight ultimately shows us that God shows grace to sinners. Because in the midst of his judgment, he shows grace to Noah. Noah finds favor with God. And it's through Noah that God will preserve humanity and continue his promise. 
to bring blessing to all people. And Enoch and Noah, we have a picture of how God saves sinners by faith, by grace through faith. That, that Noah experiences the favor of God, the grace of God, that we see this picture of what it means to walk with God by faith. See, death reigns in Adam, but grace reigns when God shows up. And grace reigns ultimately, Romans 5 tells us, <clears throat> verse 17 through 21, if by one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. At the end, verse 21, it says, So as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, leading to righteousness, through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As real as judgment is, as deep as sin can go, that much more real is the grace of God that much deeper does the grace of God flow. You see, God spared Noah and his family from judgment, but God put our judgment upon Jesus on the cross. Jesus suffered in our place and for our sin. Rather than blotting us out like the judgment and the flood, it was the will of God to blot out his own son on the cross. This is the gospel that Jesus died in our place and for our sins. And while death seemed to reign from Friday afternoon through Sunday morning, Sunday morning God showed up. And where death was reigning, grace reigned even more because Jesus got up from the grave. On Sunday, he conquered death in the grave. He defeated Satan and his schemes. He rose victoriously. And the consistent message of God's word is that he gives life to all who will come to him. He gives life to all who will call on his name. <clears throat> We're going to close with this. I'm going to read from 2 Peter verse 3, the continuation of what I read earlier. That challenges us to think about how we, we live in light of this sobering message of God's judgment and his grace. It says in verse 10, <clears throat> 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 11, it says, Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people we should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, here's the implication of God's weighty judgment and the grace that he's called us to. While you wait, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight and be at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, I love, I love this. He says, he speaks about things in all of his letters. Some of these matters are hard to understand. Um, he, but he says, the untaught and the unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they do with the rest of the scriptures. Dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you're not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. You see, as we think about how we're to live in light of God's response to sin, let me just sum it up in this way. In light of God's, the, the sobering news of his judgment and the good news of his grace, our lives should be provoked to live holy lives. 
Oh, if God is holy and judges sin, how we should long to be holy. How we should hunger for our lives to match him. We've gone a long time in the church in America thinking that if we make the church more like the world, that the world would be attracted to it. And God's consistent message throughout the scriptures is you're not to be like the world. You're to be like me. You're my children, so live distinct and set apart. And as we live distinct and set apart, we'll, we'll be the kind of people like Jesus whose life was wholly distinct. And yet, because he was, he, he was true in his holiness, he could, he could befriend any sinner. That's our problem. We, we think that we have to accept the, the sin and sin in the same ways as others. Or, or somehow to overlook the sin, to welcome people in. When Jesus said, my arms are open and yet go and sin no more. To, to live a holy life is what God has called us to. And to long for his holiness to be reflected in us. His judgment should provoke us to realize the seriousness of sin and God's delight in holiness, as well as his grace as the fuel for holiness. Listen, it's it's grace that fuels holy living. Don't get it backwards. It's not holy living that gets grace from God. It's his grace that he's shown us that fuels us to live holy lives and then stand firm in the faith. Second Peter, he says, don't allow people to twist the scriptures. I, I, I truly believe as we look at what God's word says, consistently we battle the challenge of taking God at his word, believing what he says, standing firm in our faith. And then he says, continually grow in grace, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Press more into God. We do it as we open his word here, as we do it in small groups and personal discipleship through equip classes in our daily lives. As we open God's word, God is telling us to grow in grace, grow in the grace that he's given us. Be strengthened by his grace to live holy lives, to to live on mission, to to live for the sake of others. It's the grace of God that fuels all of the Christian life. And ultimately, as we know these things and as we live this way, how can we not make the gospel known? How can we not share the good news of what God has done? Listen, if this isn't true, if this isn't true, then what we should all do is just forget about all of this. Why are we wasting our time here? Why, why, why go through all of this? But if it's true, how much different should our lives be? How much more zealous should we be for holiness? How much more eager should we be to make him known? How gracious is it of God to tell us the truth of sin and to show us how he responds to sin so that we would be people after his own heart, burdened by sin, grieved by sin as he is, provoked to to live holy lives and to make him known. I think that's what God's calling us to. As weighty as Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is, what a gracious gift it is that it's in the word of God to compel us to remember that though sin spreads and leads to death's reign, that there is a God who is full of grace and who is full of mercy, who gives us the way to life in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.